I want to say thanks for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Um, in some ways, when one has the opportunity uh, to come and join in the middle of a sermon series, it is a little bit like when uh, you are serving as the substitute teacher in a school. You're not quite sure uh, how much we've covered, uh, where we've gone so far. I feel a little bit like that this morning. In fact, I think I saw this guy here actually rolling up some spitballs. So uh, I should say that's Isaac's dad. Um, oh, I didn't mention that's my older brother. Um, so... I think it's good for us, then, as we come into the Word together, to just take a few moments and recall the context. Recall this letter, written by a real person, written to a real group of real people. Let's take a few moments now, maybe close our eyes, and refocus our thoughts into the context that the Ephesian letter is written into. Close your eyes and use your imagination. You might even want to try to picture the scene. Picture, well, in my mind, I picture a man who is, it looks like he's on house arrest. Is that a tracking bracelet around his ankle, or, no, that, that's, that's a shackle. Are those chains at his feet? They say he tried to smuggle a Gentile, actually an Ephesian man called Trophimus. He tried to smuggle a Gentile into the court of the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, that certainly caused a stir. After all, this man has caused many riots, throughout the empire. And what is that man doing by the dim lamplight? Is he, yes, it looks like he's, he's writing a letter. He's writing to friends that he knows well. While he sits here as a prisoner, his friends are sitting in one of the greatest cities of the empire. They're sitting in Ephesus, a wealthy port city, a city that is known for its learning, known for its culture. Uh, they're in a religious city. Why, their temple of Artemis is actually one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's a city of culture and religion, indeed. In reality, it's a city of many cultures, a city of many religions. And in light of that, one wonders who is worse off, this man in chains or the people he's writing to uh, that are sitting in a city that is roiled and stirred by social and religious and economic divides. Maybe that's a context that's easy for some of us to imagine. And the people that he's writing to, they themselves have weathered the, the divides of diversity, the, the difficulties that come with difference. All the while, they themselves are just a fledgling little group, just a tiny little band in this empire, which is very religious, an empire which loves its many gods, an empire which tolerates, well, just about anything. They claim 
that there is just one God, that he is a Jewish carpenter, one that was executed, found guilty by our just Roman laws. They claim that the cult of this one God is the only way to peace, is the only way. Can you imagine that? So that's the context. That's the context where we find ourselves in the Ephesian letter. And it's only when we consider that context, the context of diversity, the context of division, the context of complex cultures pressing sometimes uneasily against one another, that we begin to understand all of what Paul is saying in this letter. You've already seen together that he begins by declaring amazing things about our identity, about your identity, the, the reality that God knew you long before you knew him, that he had plans and purposed. He purposed you long before you had any plan for yourself with him. You've already read that, that Paul, in ways that are really kind of unusual for Paul as a writer, he begins not so much with Christ's suffering, which is normally his starting point, but with this high and soaring Christology. Jesus is presented as the glorious Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of the God of the universe. Yes, he was humbled in death, but so he could be exalted in resurrection, now seated at God's right hand, now seated in the heavenly places. There's so much language that is, Paul uses to tell us that now Christ is far above all of this strife that we live in now. And in fact, he's been given a name that is above all other names not only in this age, not only in this present reality, but for all time to come. Paul reminds that God, the creator of the universe, has put all things under the Christ's feet, under the anointed one's feet, and gave him to be head. And of course, uh, for those of us who are conversant with the scriptures, we know that Christ is the head of the church, but that's not Paul's starting point. He says he's given him to become head over all things. And even over the church, you and me, all those who call Jesus Lord, and he says that we now are his body, the Christ's body here on earth, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's astounding. You have seen... In the previous chapters, Paul speaking about ultimate realities, which is a little bit unusual for Paul's letters. And you've seen, up until this point, God's ultimate plan for the culmination, the fulfillment of all time, the fulfillment of all things. And what is that plan? It is to unite in himself all things in heaven and earth. In a, in a word, in a phrase, it is cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. Cosmic reconciliation. All the things in our present world that leave us feeling as if 
this place is going to hell in a handbasket that leave us feeling as if I am not sure that any of this is going to survive. I'm not sure that any of this is going to make it. I'm not sure whether I'm going to make it. And it's into this context and into the Ephesian context that Paul speaks these powerful words that God has a plan and it is for cosmic reconciliation. All things made right together and it is for unity, ultimately unity to be achieved in Christ. Ephesians is a book about unity and it is written to a people that are suffering division. They are plagued by tribalism. It's interesting to me, and you would have seen uh, in previous chapters, Paul is very interested to address the situation between Jewish followers of Jesus. And at this point in time, that was the original group. That was the largest group of believers. And now a growing number of Gentile followers of Jesus. What is interesting is, I think, I, I'm not so thrilled with the, the use of the term Gentile in our English language translations because many of us then would come with this idea that Gentiles are some monolithic group, that that's a particular group that has some identity in and of themselves. When that is not the case at all, the word that's there in the original language, ethnos, literally means the peoples. So you have this one people that God has been uh, revealing himself to throughout the old covenant, and then you have everybody else, all the other peoples on the face of the earth. And so that term Gentile is not an in-group term that people use to describe themselves or to identify themselves. It is an out-group term that others use about them to tell them who they are not or what they are not. And what they are not to many of the earliest believers is one of us. What they are not are the chosen people. What they are not in this context, is Jewish people. And Paul once subscribed to that thinking and far beyond that thinking. But now, it is very clear in the Ephesian letters, Paul makes his calling clear. He has been called to be an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles. And again, if we're not careful, we may miss the significance of what he's saying. Paul, when Paul, whenever Paul uses that phrase or that noun to describe his own calling, what he's saying is, now I've been called as an apostle to the nations, to the peoples. But it is a gospel of reconciliation that he proclaims. Look at some of the, uh, the powerful words, the reality. And Paul is talking as someone who once held a very different view on the matter, but because he has personally experienced, he has been confronted by the resurrected Christ, now his worldview has opened up to the point where instead of seeing difference that divides us, he sees among 
cultural distinctions and distinctions of background and language distinctions and essential unity that has now been built. And so we see that in chapter 2, verse 6, the Gentiles, the nations are now fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. We could continue in chapter 2, and we see that Paul writes there, uh, beginning in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, having no hope without God in the world. Uh, As Dan mentioned, as Carrie mentioned, we spent the first 14 years of our life serving overseas working primarily among the Palestinians. Uh, But in that role, and and particularly as we moved into field leadership, we we had the privilege of serving with Palestinian followers of Jesus. And their number was growing. Yeah, amen. Praise the Lord for that. It was something that many people thought they would never see. Now, some of those folks were from traditional Christian backgrounds and continued to have great fellowship with traditional Christian churches. Others were not from a Christian background. They were from a Muslim background. And um, their migration to become followers of Jesus was amazing and incredible. But that's not all of the body of Christ that we find in the Holy Land today. We also worked with networks of Messianic Jewish followers of Jesus. Now, if you know anything about the political climate between Palestinians, modern Palestinians, and modern Israelis, you would be excused for thinking that it may be difficult to really live as the body of Christ when people have, in some cases, an inability to even recognize the identity of the other. And yet we saw that in Christ, at times, there was a, I was going to say almost supernatural, I'm going to drop almost, a supernatural unity that was being built when men and women began to perceive that their identity in Christ, though not wiping out their cultural identity or their national identity by any means, but their identity in Christ became uh, the key to inform all other identities, all other distinctions that they have in their lives. We see that in what what Paul is saying, that a, a new essential unity comes in to displace the distinctions that divide. Again, Paul writes, But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And remember, much of this religious divide was about signs in the flesh and identities in the flesh. And so it's not by chance that Paul says, reminds that this wall of division was broken down in the flesh of our Lord by abolishing uh, the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
Again, an essential identity of unity, one new man in place of two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both in God, in one body, through the cross, therefore putting all hostility to death. Again, that's why I say at the the core of, of Paul's writing in the Ephesian letter is a message of cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ. And for us, it is a new identity, an entirely new identity. And again, Paul makes very clear that his apostolic calling, his mission, and you can never separate mission and calling in Paul's writing. He uses those terms simultaneously. Um, His mission, his calling has two simple purposes. One, to preach this good news, and it is good news for a world that is divided. To preach the good news uh, of reconciliation in Christ. And then the second part, he says, his calling is to make everyone else aware of this plan. Make everyone else aware of God's plan. To reconcile the whole universe to establish unity in Christ, and that God's chosen instrument to accomplish this amazing mission is you and me and all of us in the body. It is his church. And that brings us to the text for today. So uh, if you can pull out your text or your phone uh, or your scriptures, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Paul writes in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, uh, I urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Pay attention to how many times Paul talks about calling and how, how often he repeats that phrase throughout this letter. What is interesting to me is This is a very strange title that Paul uh, uses for himself. Throughout his career, he has identified himself as a teacher of the law. He's identified himself as a rabbi. He's identified himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees. Now, writing to largely a, a, a Gentile audience to the nations, in the context of the Roman Empire, he chooses a new title to identify himself, as he has elsewhere in this letter. He he says, I'm writing to you as a prisoner. This is irrational. Uh, This is a title of shame in their society, as it might be uh, in our society as well. Um, But Paul, he turns that cultural value, that societal value on its head And he takes it as a badge of honor. He proclaims that rather than being a prisoner of the emperor or prisoner of the empire, he is a prisoner for, or we might even translate a prisoner of Christ. He urges the believers then to walk, uh, to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of their calling. Paul has already been talking quite a bit about calling in this letter. He he lets us know that we have a part in his calling and God's great global redemptive plan. The scale. 
absolutely cosmic in scale. An amazing, powerful, awesome calling. So walk in a manner worthy of this awesome calling. And what does that manner look like? Verse 2, it looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like patience. It looks like bearing with one another in love. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. How does your walk compare to those values? Are those aspirational goals for you? Are those things that you uh, aspire to? Are those things that describe your life? Perhaps not. If not, it could be because much of our culture is at war with these values. Much of our culture despises these values, uh, particularly for those who are called to lead, uh, particularly for those who uh, feel a calling to stand out from the crowd or to get ahead. So much of our culture has instructed us to value trumpeting leaders who say what's on their mind, regardless of the content, regardless of the fallout. Many in, let me speak for American culture, many in American culture have come to value pride and boasting, coarseness, demanding impatience, not bearing with one another in love as the values of the day, as what we value even in leaders. It's interesting to me, behind this phrase that's translated uh, bearing with one another uh, is a Greek word, anecho, which in many places is literally translated to tolerate, to have tolerance for. Uh, It can mean enduring. And I think this phrase perhaps is the key that ties all of these other nouns together. When in the body of Christ we practice humility, we practice gentleness. When we practice patience, we will show a forbearing, tolerant disposition to one another within the body. And we will do that in a loving way. We will be people not eager for division and disputation, but as we see in verse 3, we will be people who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace. Where are my word nerds here? Where are my linguists and my English majors? Uh, Paul does some fabulous things uh, with the the written language throughout this letter. And I think this is one of the, the greatest here. The root of the word that's translated here, bond, when Paul says that we'll be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, is a word that literally in Greek means shackles, chains, the links of a chain. And so Paul reminds his readers, I'm writing as a prisoner, and I'm not a prisoner of the empire or the emperor. I am a prisoner for Christ, but you too are wearing chains. You too are bound. And what are you bound to? You're bound to one another. And what are the links of that chain? 
humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love. Paul says, walking in a manner worthy of our call means that we will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I don't think Paul is suggesting here that the Spirit can be divided. Rather, this unity is one that is only possible when we lean into, we press into, we practice absolute reliance on the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is not writing to a monocultural, monolithic audience. Um, but at the same time, unity does not mean holding all of the same ideas or seeing everything in uniformity. It doesn't mean pushing for uh, one culture, one way of doing things. Really, it is found in a person. It is found by being centered in Christ and being animated by his spirit, allowing the work of the spirit to flow in our lives so that with ever uh, increasing progression, we would experience the fruit of the spirit in our lives. We would uh, experience the gifts of the spirit and use those gifts together. We'll see more about that in just a moment. Again, it is found in being centered in a person, animated by one spirit, choosing to embrace then the values and the virtues of this kingdom and set aside all values and virtues that do not comport, that do not align with our king and with his rule and with his kingdom. So cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ and for each of us, it is a new set of values. Paul continues in what is possibly one of the earliest creeds of the church. We, we can't miss the repetition of words here. We cannot miss the emphasis on oneness and unity. In fact, we see there are seven ones here. Um, seven, of course, very significant, symbolic number. Um, in the context that Paul is writing to. And again, the fact that he is listing out in sevens, he is repeating his words, this suggests to us that this was probably a doctrinal creed, a doctrinal statement that was used in the early church, maybe was sung together as a hymn. But let's look at these words in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, we, we end in the universal, the cosmic nature of this redemptive plan. One body. Paul starts right off with the unity of believers in a context where unity is not easy, where ethnic and religious strifes, where social and economic divisions abound. In this new community, then, Paul is saying, in the Jesus community, there is only one body. And uh, as is consistent with Paul's theology elsewhere, Paul never separates 
the body and the spirit. He never separates the body and the spirit. So he goes on to say there is one spirit without the flowing, animating, breath-giving, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, you have a dead body. A body with no spirit, a body with no breath is a dead body. Paul goes on to say, you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. And again, in in Ephesians and elsewhere in Paul's writing, calling is synonymous with mission. It's the way that he reflects back on his own mission. And here he's talking about the church's mission, which is our mission. Uh, You see, um, I think it is interesting, too, that he, he links the mission with hope Because our mission, the mission of God in the world, is a now and in the present, but also a future-looking mission. And I think it can never be separated from hope. The mission Paul has already envisioned, as we've said, is global in scale. It's even cosmic or universal in scale. And it is a plan that embraces all nations, all peoples. It is a good news for all social classes. It is a plan to reconcile and set right all things. And why then is this mission so tied to hope? Because it is looking forward to its completion. It is envisioning a day when all things will be set right when all things will be reconciled, all things will be united in Christ, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Imagine that. I don't know about you, uh, but there are many days when I look at the world around me and I begin to notice that there are things that don't seem right. Uh, In recent uh, months and years, as we have been working among Syrian and Iraqi and other refugees that are flooding onto the, the shores of Europe, and we listen to their heartbreaking stories, stories of loss, loss of property, possessions, loss of freedom, loss of home, loss of citizenship, in so many cases, loss of family members, loss of spouses, loss of children for surprising number, loss in their physical bodies, loss of health, loss of limbs. There are days when that gets quite heavy. And I find myself crying out to God and saying, how long, O Lord? How long, O oh Lord, until this, all this suffering is brought to an end? I can only cry out in faith because I have read the end of the story, that I believe that it is God's great and good plan and purpose to one day set all of these things right, to one day reconcile all of us together. And even though we are engaging in um, tangible ways and uh, with our hands and with our hearts and 
uh, using every opportunity and resources that we can to try to come alongside some of those gripping needs, someday, some days the, the only thing, and, and sometimes it appears the, the greatest thing that I can do is sit down with someone and listen to their pain and speak from the word of God and speak from the faith that I hold to say, I, I can't make your suffering stop. I'm here. I'm ready to come alongside, but I don't have the power to do almost anything that you need. But I believe that a day is coming. I believe that God loves you even now, that he has a plan one day to set all of this right, to make this suffering end. His desire has never been for chaos. It has always been for peace and reconciliation. Reconciling us all together, ultimately because he is reconciling us all to him. At the center of this mission, Paul goes on to say, is one Lord. It's interesting to me that over and over in the Ephesian letter, Paul refers to Jesus with a three-part title. Uh, most often he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord. There's, there's no question who he's referring to when he invokes our one Lord. He goes on to say there's one faith. One faith, and even though we are commended to practice tolerance and humility, and I think uh, part of that, as I work with believers from many contexts throughout the globe, certainly as I would sit with Jewish followers of Jesus and Palestinian believers, so often I was urging them to practice theological humility, to recognize that there are some things that are very clear and they are, uh, have always been present in the body of the believers. These are articles of faith. They're unwavering. But there are many, many, many other things for which we are not quite so certain. And that's okay. So in those matters, if we choose to practice theological humility, if we choose to have tolerance and sometimes deference from one another, what happens? We then remain in unity. We remain in peace. We remain in the body. We remain listening to the Holy Spirit and reading the scriptures together. We don't go off to our corners. We don't build our dividing walls that have been broken down in Christ. And that actually has an amazing process of keeping us engaged together and learning from one another and growing together. And ultimately, my prayer is, listening to the Holy Spirit together, reading the word together and allowing him to align and set right the things that I may not be so sure about or may in fact be wrong about. And again, Paul is affirming here that there is right believing. But when Paul talks about one faith, I am not so certain that he is talking about the articles of doctrine. We know that in his context, in the context of Scripture, so often when faith is invoked, what we believe 
It is actually a relational term that talks about the need to cast our belief into a person, to transfer our trust into a person. I remember uh, a, a Palestinian believer named uh, Burhan, and he was a man from a Muslim background and uh, studying God's word, tracking. Uh, he was coming and, and part of the community for about three years. He had been schooled and trained his whole life to disbelieve the scriptures. Uh, he had all kinds of arguments built up against belief, some of which were uh, not really uh, in any sense well-founded. But this was the worldview that he was coming from. This was the software of his mind. And yet, as he came together and practiced body life, coming together with the Christ-centered community, he loved the worship. He loved being with believers who were praying. He loved seeing answers to prayer. It came to the point where he said, I just, I can't wrap my mind around everything in Scripture, but Jesus, I love Jesus. I, I just, I'm having trouble with my intellectual belief. I raised that story um, because the next Friday we were meeting, Barhan came in to announce that he was ready to make a public declaration that he was now a follower of Jesus. Now, me as a, a Westerner, my, I asked him the question, what convinced you? What did you study? What did you read? What brought you to, to that place of intellectual ascent? And he just kind of looked at me like I had seven heads. It's not about that at all. It was not about that at all for Brahan. He had a dream. And in his dream, Jesus came to him. And he said, I'm not asking you to believe everything in that book that will come. What I'm asking you is if you believe in me. If you're willing to trust me, Jesus, as a person. But Han said he woke and felt as if he had been punched between the eyes. He realized, yes, that is what this is about. It is about a, a relationship, a journey with a person. And, and just to make a long story short, I'm pleased to tell you that he continued to... to he, so he, he began his life as a follower of Jesus that day, but began, be, continued to track and study. And now... Barhan uses the, the scriptures which he trusts implicitly to help others from his background come to know the person of Jesus. And so I think when Paul is talking about faith, we need to be careful because many of us, if we are from a Western context, think about intellectual ascent. I think it's probably more about relationally transferring our trust. Paul goes on to talk about one, baptism. It's the powerful corrective of a people who've been divided over what marks are in your flesh. The circumcision or not circumcision parties. Um, if you ever get invited to a circumcision party, I say stay away. Um, um, but you, you know these are the divisions that were found in the early church. And, and in some sense, baptism then becomes the new symbol. And it's a public symbol. 
And it's not a symbol that's just for one people. It's not a symbol that only resides on male flesh. In fact, it's not a symbol that resides in the flesh at all. It's a, it, it, these are the marks that we wear on our heart. And so just that affirmation of baptism, which becomes so common for us as modern believers, of course, baptism, that was a worldview trans, transforming concept to many in the early church. And again, Paul continues, and he moves on, of, of course, to um, affirm the oneness of God, who is Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And again, what he is talking about is cosmic reconciliation. What he is talking about is unity in Christ. It's an ancient faith, but it is a new way of belonging for each of us. And Paul continues, and he begins to talk about grace. Grace that was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Um, here, as Paul continues, he references and interprets Psalm 68. Uh, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to all men. And the text continues in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And again, Paul is reminding his readers again and again of the high and lofty place that the Christ now occupies. And we understand, or maybe we don't, the picture of the the. A victorious emperor or the victorious general who leads all the captives in a triumphal train. And then what does he do? He takes the spoils of war and he gives gifts to all of the um, those who uh, fought on his side, helped him win the victory. That's the, the picture that Paul is appropriating here. And then it's interesting to me that th this text, Paul says that we were given gifts. And you may ask the question, where was I when the battle was being fought? Well, I think there are a couple ways that we can look at that. Where was I when Christ was winning his victory? Well, we were there because the scripture says while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So in some sense, we were the enemies on the battlefield. We were also there because scripture tells us that all of our sin was born by Christ on the cross. And in that sense, we were there. I think in another sense, Scripture says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And the joy of bringing redemption and liberation and freedom to you was part of what Christ was carrying there on the cross. And because of his victory, we get new gifts, new gifts in the church. And Paul goes on and he mentions that he gave, uh, uh, to some he gave apostles, to some the prophets, to some evangelists, to some shepherds and teachers. Some have looked and said, okay, these are gifts that were given just to the apostles or just to leaders in the church. But many look and say, no, Paul says it right there. He's, he gives, has given gifts to each one of us. And so some are given giftings to be sent ones, to be apostles, and some to be 
prophets to boldly speak words with particularly spirit-given insight. Uh, Some are gifted to be evangelists, good news tellers. I think the storytellers in the kingdom. Uh, Some to be shepherds, those who practice leadership with care and compassion. And some to be teachers, uh, whether in a a setting like this or in other settings, uh, who are particularly gifted to unfold the truth uh, to others in the body. Now, as I serve as a team's developer working with international worker teams in Europe and the Middle East, I am increasingly encountering very diverse teams. Teams of, well, I'll give you an example. Three weeks ago, I returned from visiting with uh, international worker teams in Spain. And uh, on just one of these teams, we found uh, workers from the ages of their early 20s to their late 60s, Uh, The nations that were represented among this team were three South American nations, four four African nations, two North American nations, three European nations, three Asian nations. That's a lot of diversity. It's a lot of cultural difference, a lot of heart-language difference. And yet that is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a body which embraces and tolerates and loves diversity and loves difference without division. And often in teams like this, we are trying to see where the Holy Spirit is at work. We're we're trying to help one another understand the, the giftedness that God has already given to them. Trying to help them envision styles of leadership that are not leaders who lord over others with authority, but actually... Uh, modeling a kind of interdependent leadership where even those in um, titular authority will turn to one another and say, uh, you know what, Susan, you are far more gifted in this area. Will you take the lead on that? Uh, You know what, Jose, this is for you to take and run with. You know what, Huni, this is a role where I see you have giftedness. And And it is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ where no one leads in a way that lords over the other, that appreciates not only the diversity that we find in our flesh and because of our background, but the diversity of giftings that God has created. And why has he created all of these things? We have been given gifts, the scriptures say, to equip the saints for service, for the building up of the body of Christ. That simply means the thing that a child never wants to hear on Christmas morning. These gifts are not just for you. These gifts are for the church. These gifts are for all of us. And while they may be deeply tied to our personal calling, they may be deeply tied to our identity, they are, in fact, not so much for us as individuals as they are for all of us. A body building up the body together. So we're talking about cosmic reconciliation. We're talking about unity in Christ, and it means a new way of leading and a new way of serving. And ultimately, what is the goal? 
Paul says it in verse 13, until we all attain to, literally arrive at, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood to the measure of the full stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the goal? Just that. To be a mature, full person, to reflect, to measure up, to the stature of the full person of Christ. Just that. It's that simple. It's that easy. But isn't that the goal of the Christian life? That we would ever be more and more reflecting Christ. We would ever be more and more transformed into his image. Paul goes on, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, carried about by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And if we find that we at times are behaving in immature ways, in childish, which is so much different than childlike ways, if we feel that we are tossed and churned, carried along by the tidal waves and winds of teachings, human cunning, the word that's behind there is actually kubos, dice games, that we are uh, being caught up in trickery, that we are being deceived, swindled, distracted. It may be, if we find that we are in that state, it may be because we are not acting like the body. We are not allowing ourselves, yielding ourselves to be animated by the Spirit, humbly putting to use the good gifts that we have been given for others. In this context, I think Paul seems especially concerned that we not withhold or misuse the gifts that we have been given for the benefit of the body. He says that, one, we need to speak the truth. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to give us boldness and direction and utilize the gifts that we've been given, but we need to speak the truth in love, to do that in loving, Christ-like ways. Finally, Paul concludes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head into Christ for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, it is, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that is a no person left behind picture. It is a whole body which needs every member. And it is every member which needs the whole body. The goal is the glorification of Christ, which is accomplished through God's global redemptive work, his mission, a mission that we have been called to join in, a mission to reconcile all creation, to bring all things in unity in the Son, and again, while this is first and foremost God's mission, God's global redemptive work, it is a mission that he calls each and every one of us to embrace. The spirit, the gifts, 
the unity in the body, all in order to accomplish God's great and good global redemptive mission, which is reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation, reconciliation of all things. And it is expressed in and yields as its fruit unity in Christ. As the worship team comes, let's take just a moment, maybe close our eyes. And ask of the Father, ask of the Spirit a question. Lord, would you help us to see and understand? Would you show us greater opportunities to press in to your work in the body of Christ? What would you call us to? What opportunities would you uh, invite us to take so that we would be more in the life of the body, that we would experience and be blessed more by the life of the body? What would it look like to be fully within your body? And Lord, even as we long for the day when you will set all things right, what would it look like for each of us to live out reconciliation in our lives today? What would it look like for us to be people of humility and gentleness and patience? People who bear with one another in the bonds of love, people of peace. Lord, would you show us where we can, with greater intensity, and with greater impact, engage in your work. We thank you that you have called us into yourself. You've given us identity in Christ. You've invited us into one body. We thank you. And we ask for empowerment as we join you in your great global redemptive task to reconcile all things in yourself. We give you thanks for your goodness to us and for all the things that you will accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen.